We are in Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12, we'll be looking at verses 3 through 8. 3 through 8 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, I would encourage you to grab one of the blue Bibles located underneath the seats around you. You can flip that open to page 948. 948, that'll bring you to our text this morning. So before we read the text, let me give you a little bit of context. Context. It's always important to kind of understand what's going on because it has everything to do with how we understand the text. Specifically, first, historical context. Historical context. Paul is writing this letter to the Christians in Rome from the city of Corinth. From the city of Corinth. I think that fact sheds some light on our text today, or verses 3 through 8. Because, maybe you're not aware, but Paul's experience with the church in Corinth, which we know about uh, through the divinely inspired letters that he wrote to them, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, was an experience that led Paul to recognize the potential for sinful pride in the church in regard to spiritual gifts. Spiritual gifts. Church in Corinth was a highly gifted church, but also a very boastful and arrogant church in relation to their gifting. As one writer put it, due to Paul's experience with the Corinthian church, he recognizes the danger that the possession of a spiritual gift could easily result in a self-esteem that was nothing more or nothing less than wretched pride. Now, Keeping that historical context in mind, we also don't want to forget the immediate context. The immediate context. Now I'm talking about the the passages that we just looked at that come right before this section of God's Word, specifically verses 1 and 2, where Paul called us to offer our very bodies to God as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to Him. But in order to fulfill... And maintain this commitment, Paul says, you might remember this from last week, we must not let the world squeeze us into its mold, right? But rather, we must be changed or transformed. How? Well, Paul doesn't leave us wondering. He tells us by the continual renewing or reprogramming of our minds. And I said last week, that's so important, beloved, because how we think drives how we live. And, as we shall see in our text today, the renewed Christian mind is to be a humble mind. Is to be a humble mind. Now, what that means in the context of our passage is it is a mind that rightly evaluates our spiritual gifts and everyone's place in the body of Christ. So, beloved, to conclude or wrap up, I believe Paul's call to renew our minds in verse 2 and his experience with the spiritually gifted but big-headed and proud Christians in Corinth is what paves the way for what he writes here in verses 3 through 8. The text before us this morning. All right? Context. And I think this will be more clear as we move through the text and I begin to try to explain some of 
what Paul is saying here. You'll see how important context plays in. You ready to read the text? Okay. Beginning in verse 3, Romans chapter 12. Apostle Paul wrote, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. That's our text. Now, a technical note, a technical note concerning this text. And if this, if this is difficult, don't worry about it. I just want to express it to you because you might have different translations. You might be wondering uh, specifically about what's going on here. In verses 6 through 8, the, the last part there that we just read of this section, many Bible scholars agree that there are words implied here but not expressed in the original Greek manuscripts from which we get our translations. By the way, that's not uncommon in the Greek. So you're looking at me kind of funny. We would call this an ellipsis, an ellipsis, or the omission of one or more implied words from a sentence. The omission of one or more implied words from a sentence. One example of an ellipsis would be the omission of the word go. At the end of the sentence, I went, but my wife didn't. The word go is implied, but not included in the sentence, okay? You understand? That's really all you have to get. And as I said, many Bible scholars believe there is an ellipsis, or they assume an ellipsis here in these verses in 6 through 8. There are words being implied, but are not expressed in the original Greek. We do it in our own language as well. So the ESV, in its translation, the one we use here, reflects this ellipsis by inserting the words, let us use them, in the middle of verse 6. Look back at your Bibles. Do you see that? Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, that entire phrase, let us use them, is not in the original Greek manuscripts. But, along with many translators and scholars, they believe it's implied by all the statements that follow. The NIV translates verses 6 through 8 this way, also assuming an ellipsis, specifically that Paul is he's telling us to do something. He's not just listing gifts, but he's telling us to use them. I like the way the NIV translates it here. I think it's just a little more readable. So I wanted to show you that. It goes like this. We have different gifts according to the grace given to us, period. That's all in the Greek. If a man's gift is prophesying, here's the ellipsis, let him use it. Let them use it. So what they'll do in IV, they add that phrase to every single gift, which just makes it more readable instead of putting it at the front in verse 6. I just want to read it through. Let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it's contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. Okay, that was the technical part. So... We'll keep moving. 
Now, I'm going to come back to Paul's phrase in verse 1, where he says, by the grace given to me, I say. I'm going to come back to that when we get to verse 6, so just hold on. But first, let's just simply consider Paul's instruction, Paul's exhortation here. He tells everyone in the church not to think of him or herself more highly than they ought to think. But rather think with sober judgment or be sober-minded or think soberly as the uh, New King James translates the phrase. One writer says this, in contrast to the overestimation of ourselves to which we are so prone. Huh? Huh? Just check in. Hey, I'm the sick one. You guys can respond here. I'm doing all the work. Give me a little bit of something. In contrast to the overestimation of ourselves to which we are so prone. Yes, yeah, yes, of course. Paul insists that we are to view ourselves in a sober manner. One writer jokingly says, you know, in other words, we're not supposed to be egoholics. Egoholics, which is exactly what we too often end up being. So in other words, in thinking about ourselves, we need to be sensible or have sound thinking. We need to have a, a sober estimate of ourselves, rather than judging or thinking ourselves to be better or greater or more important than we actually are. Huh? Man, husbands and wives, you could start applying this right now as a personal application to your life. (laughs) The bottom line, beloved, is we are not to have an inflated view of ourselves. But note that this command that Paul makes is not made all by itself, right? It's not just all by itself. Hey, don't think higher of yourself than you ought, but think with sober judgment, period, end of story, right? There's a context here, and the context is a discussion concerning the diversity of spiritual gifts and their uses within the one body of Christ, or in this case, the local church. Now look back at the text, verse 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. You see that phrase at the end, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned? Here's a couple other translations. Sometimes this is helpful. Try to get at what exactly is being communicated. Here's a New American Standard Bible. Basically says the same thing on the front end. Then at the end it says, but to think so as to have sound judgment as God has allotted to each a measure of faith. Okay. Another good translation of the Bible, the NET. The NET. Think with sober discernment as God has distributed to each of you, each of you in the church, a measure of faith. What is that last statement supposed to mean? Well, the meaning is not entirely clear, and therefore it has been understood in a few different ways. But the way I understand it is that Paul is simply pointing out that to each member of the church, God has allotted or distributed 
a measure or quantity of a varying amount of faith. And in light of the discussion of the spiritual gifts that follow, I believe Paul means by that that God has given to each person in the church differing amounts of faith for the exercise of various spiritual gifts. Or you might say the statement means that God has, uh, that statement that God has allotted to each a measure of faith refers to the differing capacities God gives to those in the church required to use their particular gift or gifts. So, according to God's purposes, every believer, note that, every believer receives the gift and resources they need to fulfill their God-given role in the body of Christ or the local church. One commentator just says this. He just, to make it really simple, he says, God has given each believer some faith by which to serve him. (laughs) I mean, that's real basic, but that probably is correct. Now, listen to this. In light of that, who's the one giving the faith? Right, he's giving it, he's giving it proportionally, he's giving, he's, di- he's dishing it out, he's, attrib- he's giving it to those so that they could exercise their gifts. Right, so one writer says this, and the gifts vary, there's varying gifts, we'll see that in a second. He says, whether we have the gifts and faith to launch and sustain a worldwide ministry, and some do, or whether we exercise our gifts and faith on a small, local scale, keep in mind that everything you are and have comes from God. And then he goes on to say, this attitude eliminates pride. Or at least it does, <laughs> I, I wouldn't say that. Uh, it does a good job of beating it up because pride just does it. It's a monster, man. It's a monster in us. But it does a good job at putting it in its place. How can I boast when I am only doing what God has graciously enabled me to do? Huh? Yeah, exactly. Paul says this. Now, back to that context, that historical context. Again, remember, the spiritual gifts, he's dealing with that in Corinthians. He says in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, what do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Which is exactly what they were doing. So then, beloved, don't think more highly of yourself than you ought, as God is the one who provides the necessary means for each person in the church to exercise their spiritual gift or gifts. It's God. Well, now let's look at verses 4 and 5, still in this context. See what Paul says there. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. So Paul draws a comparison here between the human body and the body of Christ, or the church. Does that illustration sound familiar to you? Where, where do we see that illustration? 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, chapter 12 and following. Uh, more detail there, but Paul uses this, this similar uh, metaphor. So in verse 4 of our text, 
Paul refers to the human body, that's what he's talking about, the human body, and he points out something that is is obvious because he's going to draw a comparison, that the human, the one human body, within the one human body, your human body, there are members or parts, or parts, that's what the word means, that belong to that one body, like hands and feet and eyes and the mind and the heart and the lungs and etc. You with me so far? Okay. And obviously, the various parts of the body do not all have the same function or do the same thing or have the same purpose in contributing to the health or well-being of that one body, right? right. Similarly, uh, similarly, similarly, As the church, we are united to one another in Christ, into one body. And individually, we are members, because of that, of one of another, or one of another. Which means, beloved, which means that we must live out our Christian experience in the fellowship, or in fellowship with one another. Because, like the human body, We need the other parts of the body, each having its own function and purpose designed by God to contribute to the good of the whole. See, I might think, I might say, well, the heart is certainly one of the more important parts of the body, and and that would be, in a sense, true, but the heart will cease to function if the body is not fed. Right? Right? So the heart, even though it is an important organ of your body, relies on the hands and the eyes and the mouth and the digestive system and so on and so forth. And that's just one example. We are members one of another. We are relying on one another. So one writer says this concerning verses 4 and 5. Just listen because I'm trying to get to the main idea he has here at the end. Three truths are set forth in verses 4 and 5. First, the unity of the body, one body, the diversity of its members, so many different parts, with corresponding diversity and function. That just means, okay, so hand and foot, different parts, different functions. And the mutuality of the various members. That's that phrase, each member belongs to all the others. That item calls attention to the need of the various parts of the body for each other. They cannot work independently. They cannot. Huh? If the hand, listen, if the hand, and Paul deals with this in 1 Corinthians 12, and he makes it, he expresses it more clearly, but if the hand decides he's going to go off and live on his own and do his own thing apart from the body, how far is that hand going to get? He's not going to get anywhere. He'll die. He'll die, beloved. By the way, this is, On one level, this is the importance of the local body or the church. It's the importance of being part of one, being plugged into one, submitting to one. They cannot work independently. I know a lot of Christians think they can. I'm just going to do my own Christian thing. I don't need the church. I don't need, you know, the teachers. I teach myself. I instruct myself. I grow myself. I'm sorry, beloved. That's not how God designed it. And yet people try to do it. And I think they fail miserably at it. Because God didn't design it that way. They cannot work independently. Furthermore, each member profits from what the other members contribute to the whole. Huh? 
Then they says this, reflection on these truths reduces preoccupation with one's own gift and makes room for appreciation of other people and the gifts they exercise. I think that's right. Beloved, I think in verses 4 and 5, Paul is addressing the same basic issue that he did in his letter to the Corinthians where he used, as I said, the same body metaphor. Paul rebuked the arrogance of some of the Christians in the church in Corinth who prided themselves on having more important gifts in the body of Christ. So here in Romans, Paul uses the same metaphor to support his exhortation in verse 1 that believers not think more highly of themselves than they should. The truth is, by God's design, we who are in the body of Christ are dependent, beloved, dependent on one another and our diversity of God-given gifts for our spiritual growth and well-being. We need one another. Now let's look at verse, the first part of verse 6. Paul says this, Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. There's that ellipsis. Following this statement, Paul goes on to give a sample of seven, seven different gifts, a sample. Prophecy, service, teaching, exhortation, contributing, leading, and mercy. And we will briefly go over those in a moment. But first, I want you to notice that Paul doesn't just say, having gifts that differ, let us use them. He doesn't say that, does he? Look at your text. Right. Rather, he says, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. One writer commenting on that says this, with his eye, Paul's eye, Still on the danger of pride, Paul reminds his readers that these new capacities for service are not native to those who exercise them, but come from divine grace. Native, beloved, just means they're not born with them. They get them from somewhere. They get them from God. And if you remember, I said I would come back to Paul's phrase in verse 1, right? I said I would come back to that in verse 6, where Paul in there says, By the grace given to me, I say. By the grace given to me, I say. What's Paul talking about there? Well, we looked at it in the first chapter of Romans, but it's his gift of apostleship. It's his gift of apostleship. He was exercising the authority of his apostleship. So he says, By the grace given to me, I say. In several of, the le- of Paul's letters, Paul repeatedly linked his apostleship to the grace he received from God to be an apostle. I see this most clearly in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 9 and 10, where Paul says, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. What's he talking about? I'm an apostle. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, 
but the grace of God that is with me. You see the humility there? You see that humble mind? Just as God's grace had made Paul an apostle, beloved, so the same grace bestows different gifts on other members of Christ's body or the church for the good of the entire body. And Paul's just ever keeping that before your face. It's grace. It is grace. It is God. It is all him. Beloved, apart from God's grace then, or his unearned and undeserved favor, and I thought that section that Chris read out of that devotional, that would have been a great intro. I could have started with that. I I should have thought about that, but I didn't. But without God's grace, the church then would be spiritually giftless. That's the truth. Spiritually giftless. In light of that, we must certainly not think of ourselves more highly than we ought to, rather think with sober judgment. Now, before I close, I know you're shocked, but we have communion. But I have another page, so don't worry. By close, I mean another 10, 15 minutes. (laughs) Before I close, I'm going to make some general comments concerning the various gifts that Paul lists here. I believe Paul gives uh, a sample of gifts this particular sample, to illustrate the great diversity, the great diversity that there is in the one body of Christ. But, as we've seen from that ellipsis, that implied, those implied words, if the gifts are to bring about the positive benefits that God intends, then they must be faithfully used. They have to be used. People have to exercise their spiritual gifts. That's why there should be no Pew warmers, as they're sometimes referred to. We don't have pews. Chair warmers. People, by that, they never, they just sit in their seats. They never do anything else. They sit in their seats. They come. They take. They never enter into giving, using their gifts for the sake of the body of Christ. That shouldn't be so. By the way, among Bible commentators, there is considerable difference of opinion with respect to the specific meaning of some of these functions. I just want to say that up front. So, Paul is not trying to teach all that there is to be said about spiritual gifts. If you have any questions about spiritual gifts, Thomas will be more than happy to answer them. (laughs) But Paul doesn't do that here. He doesn't intend to do that, so I'm not going to do it either. But I will make some general comments on these gifts and realize this is not an exhaustive list either. The first is prophecy. The first is prophecy. Paul adds that the gift was to be used in proportion to our faith. First century church. What what does that mean, in proportion to our faith? Well, guess what? That's debated. That's debated. But according to, because it's a little ambiguous, but according to one Bible commentator, a better translation would be in agreement to the faith, in agreement to the faith, meaning that the true prophet will not say anything that does not agree with the truth already delivered to the church. True prophets spoke for God directly. Thus saith the Lord, and provided edification to the body by exhorting and comforting the believers through the divine revelations, not their own revelations, not the ones they're making up in their head, but through divine revelations that they were granted 
from God. And Paul makes mention of, of that in 1 Corinthians 14, 3 and 29 and so forth. Some prophets wrote holy scriptures. Okay? They wrote holy scriptures. So when we think about Mark or Luke or James, they were prophets. They were prophets. And they, along with the apostles, were the foundation of the church. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. Let me ask you something. How many times do you put down a foundation? Once. Once. That foundation has been laid. I do not believe this gift, prophecy, is still functioning in the church today. But rather, with the completion of the New Testament, there is no longer a need for this specific gift, and therefore it has ceased. It has ceased. But it was active in the first century church. And remember the historical context. He's writing to the first century church. The second is service. The second gift is service. It's a general term for ministry, and it is a gift that is fairly broad in its application. By the way, the root word for service here in the text is the same word from which we get the word deacon. Deacon. And you may not know this, but the first deacons in the early church were placed in charge of providing food for the widows in order to free the apostles to devote themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. You'll see that in Acts chapter 6, verses 3 through 4. It's a service-oriented gift. One writer says this, The gift of service is manifested in every sort of practical help that Christians can give one another in Jesus' name. Okay? By the way, before we move on, well, I don't have the gift of service, so that's why I don't serve. <laughs> All, okay, so I want to talk just a little bit about that. Every Christian is called upon to evangelize, to share his or her faith, to make disciples of Jesus Christ, every single one, just so you know. However, God gives the gift of evangelism to some in the church. They excel. I would say they are, they are the teachers, maybe, of evangelism, or they excel at it. They're, they're, they're excellent in what they do. They have great results. So, in the same way, every believer in Jesus Christ is called to serve. Okay? In one way or another. <laughs> but God does gift some in a more extraordinary way. And that may be what he's talking about when it comes to deacons. When it comes to deacons. The third is teaching. Here's another example. So teaching in the church involves passing on the truth of the Scriptures to others. Those so gifted are able to package and communicate divine truth in a way that is accurate and edifying to the body of Christ. You probably teach your kids, though, right? You probably, I hope, you teach your kids, you teach your children, husband teaches a wife, right? In the scriptures, that doesn't necessarily mean you have the gift of teaching. This specifically was in the context of the local body of Christ. And God gave to each body, the body of Christ, that local manifestation of the one body of Christ, he gives to them teachers. And he, he gifts them so that they may 
may perform this task with excellence. Not everyone is gifted as a teacher in this way. Okay? Have you ever been in one of those churches? (laughs) Ooh, got quiet. I've been to some churches where I thought, this man should not be expositing the word of God. Not because he was... Uh, inerrant, like he had a problem with what he was saying, but his delivery, the way he brings it, his explanation, I couldn't get anything. I didn't understand anything. Maybe that was on me, but I've been into some other ones where I know it wasn't on me, okay? So not every man, not every church, not every man has the gift of teaching. So that, but it, that doesn't mean that you still don't teach to some degree, right? That's all I'm saying. The fourth is exhortation. Mildred has the gift of exhortation. She's told me. And I believe it. I believe it. I've heard her. <laughs> but it's, it's good, guys. It's good. The gifted exhorter serves the body by urging and encouraging Christians to live out the truth of the gospel or God's word. They're gifted at it. Highly skilled. Does that, not, does that mean that I can't exhort my brothers and sisters in Christ because I don't have the gift? No. But there are some in the body that are especially gifted at it. They excel. You got the idea? Oh, I said all that to get to this one. The fifth is contributing or contributing to the needs of others. Uh, the one who exercises this gift is to give generously, according to Paul, or with liberality, not skimpily. Okay? Skimpily. I found that someone said that word, and I'm like, I've never heard that, skimpily. <laughs> That's great. Not skimpily. Not, you know, just a little bit, right? Now, Contributing to the need, this is kind of broad as well, but certainly that would include the giving that takes place here on Sunday morning for the advancement of the gospel, for the support of the local gospel ministry that God has put here. So, you know, you don't say, well, I, Jeremy, I don't have the gift of contributing or the gift of giving. I don't have it. Therefore, I don't put anything into the offering. Really? Okay, by the way, on that note, on that note, we've had people ask questions about giving. Like, is it a tithe? Is it a certain amount? And so what we did was we created a small pamphlet that we put out this morning to give you a biblical perspective. So if, I hope you pick it up. There's some there in the back table and on the resource table next to the offering envelopes. Uh, but I hope it'll give you a good, a good understanding of giving. But bottom line is this. We're called to, to give, okay? I'm going to tell you right now, it's not a tithe. I'm going to tell you that. Read the pamphlet now. I hopefully got your interest. We don't practice the tithe here, and I think we have biblical reasons for that. So anyway, read, read it. But the church has to give, otherwise we're done, right? Okay, so, but some are gifted, and they excel in this way. Thank God for them. But thank God for everyone who gives. You see? All right. The six is leading. The six is leading. The people of God need to be led. They need to be led. They're sheep. Hello. Sheep need a leader. They need a shepherd. You know? They, they, they need that um, pastor, elder, watching over them, caring for their souls. Not lording it over them, but loving them, caring for them, watching over them, protecting them from all the junk that's in this world, all the false teaching, and so on and so forth. People of God need to be led. God has uniquely gifted certain people to be able to effectively do so, such as the elders of the church. Those who exercise this gift are to lead with zeal. 
with zeal and diligence, as the uh, New American Standard Bible puts it. In other words, you know what that means? They got to work hard. They got to work hard. You ever tried corralling sheep? Like corralling cats, man. It's, uh... <laughs> One writer says, leadership among the people of God requires hard work and sacrifice and is no place for laziness. Therefore, Paul exhorts those with this gift to be diligent in its exercise. Okay? The seventh is mercy. Just general comments. People joke sometimes, I don't have the gift of mercy. That's why I can't work in the children's ministry. (laughs) But that's really not, that's really not what this is. Um, But if you feel that way, do not work in the children's ministry. (laughs) Do not. This gift enables people to engage effectively in the important ministry of visiting the sick, caring for the elderly or disabled, and providing for the poor. One example of this might be Dorcas. Uh, She's in Acts. I know it's a strange name, but she's in Acts chapter 9, verse 36. It it says there, in Joppa there was a disciple uh, named Tabitha, which when translated as Dorcas, who was always doing good and helping the poor. Always. Gift of mercy. Gift of mercy. Again, does that mean we're not... We don't ever engage in helping the sick or elderly or disabled or poor. No, but some excel. They've been uniquely gifted for that very task. And Paul instructs us that the gift of mercy is to be exercised with cheerfulness. With cheerfulness. I like what one writer says. The afflicted have troubles of their own. They have no need of helpers. who carry out their obligation as if it was a great crushing burden. Right? One writer added, if you come with sympathy to sorrow, I like this, if you come with sympathy to sorrow, bring God's sunlight in your face. Isn't that good? That was good. Well, beloved, I'm just going to conclude now. I'm going to conclude our time. That's it. I'm going to conclude this message with a word (laughs) from the Apostle Peter. So we've heard from the Apostle Paul. Let's just for a second take a look at a text the Apostle Peter wrote. It's in 1 Peter chapter 4. 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 10 and 11. He wrote this. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another. In the body of Christ, that's what he's talking about. As good stewards. You guys know what stewards means, right? Stewards. You've been given a responsibility, a management to care for this. As good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Beloved, here's my conclusion. 
and then we will share in communion together as the body of Christ. Whatever one's gift or gifts, okay, he or she has, they should faithfully use it to humbly serve the body of Christ, seeing it as a blessed stewardship from God, and also truly appreciate and honor, honor the other members of the one body of Christ and the diversity of God-given gifts they exercise in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. Brother, why don't you come up and continue our time, our worship together.